we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. And we will be expositing these two verses uh, towards the, the second half of this morning's message, but we're going to look at a lot of other passages as well. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. This is God's word. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Question 20 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the all-important question, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer could have been, yeah, and that'd be the end of the catechism. But instead, praise God, it says, God having, out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Martin Luther's monumental treatise that was the beating heart of the Reformation was his book, The Bondage of the Will. And if you've not read that book, you need to read that book. He cites more than 300 passages of Scripture showing the biblical, orthodox, Augustinian doctrine of monergistic regeneration and sovereign, unconditional, electing grace in the salvation of sinners. Now, monergism simply means one working. How are we regenerated? How are we saved? There's one working. God saves us. So strong was Luther on this particular point in that early book that he wrote that Later, Lutheran theologians and Lutheran systematicians tended to follow Luther's friend Philip Melanchthon and his compromised views. And I've always thought that if Luther had lived long enough, he would eventually, eventually have been a Calvinist. I know that's to the chagrin of many a Lutheran, but if you read The Bondage of the Will, he's one of us. There's not a doubt about it. I still remember reading this sentence in The Bondage of the Will. Many, this is more than 25 years ago in my life. I read this quotation from Luther. He says, quote, If any man would ascribe even the least part of his salvation to his free will, he knows nothing of grace and has not learned Jesus Christ. End quote. Now that sounds a little like overkill, doesn't it? Is Luther trying to swat a gnat with a sledgehammer in that sentence? Or is he correct? I maintain that he is correct. Indeed, biblically correct. As much as I think that there are many sincere Christians who either don't fully understand what he's talking about or who have simply put the topic on the side of, well, it's a mystery. Well, it's a pedantic point of theology that all these eggheads like to argue about. No, no pious Christian needs to concern himself with, with things like this. What amazes me personally about the debate between Desiderius Erasmus, the Roman Catholic priest, and then Martin Luther on the question of the will of man and what the will does or doesn't do in salvation is how similar it is to the debates that we have about these subjects today. If you Google Calvinism and Arminianism or Augustinianism versus Pelagianism or whatever, you will find the very same statements that we make all the time today. If you read the, the debate between Augustine and Pelagius from the late 300s and early 400s, it's the same stuff we argue about today. Erasmus wrote his book on the freedom of the will, and Luther wrote his book, The Bondage of the Will. And Erasmus defends the autonomy of the human will and, and its decisive force in the salvation of sinners. Erasmus is very clear. How are we saved? God helps man save himself. That's, what, that's how we're saved. That's what Erasmus taught. And he taught that perspective very stridently in his book, The Freedom of the Will. And at the same time he's teaching that, he dismisses the whole question as irreverent, inquisitive, and superfluous. And because of this attitude displayed by Luther's opponent, Erasmus, Luther was left wondering why he wrote a book on the freedom of man's will in the first place. 
if the question is irrelevant and is foolish and is inquisitive and superfluous, why did you write about it then? Why defend that view? You know, we get the same attitude today. Many are convinced that God is not sovereign and that man's will is decisive in salvation. But then they'll turn right around and say, the whole question of man's will is is a total bugaboo. We don't need to worry about it. Luther said this to Erasmus, to this attitude, and listen to this. Luther is exactly right. If you're going to be a biblical Christian, he's exactly right. Luther says, therefore, it is not irreverent, inquisitive, or superfluous, but essential, salutary, and necessary for a Christian to find out whether the will does anything or nothing in matters pertaining to eternal salvation. Indeed, as you should know, this is the cardinal issue between us. What's he talking about? The cardinal issue between us about what? The Reformation. The whole Protestant Reformation was about unconditional election, really. That's what the whole thing's about. He says, Erasmus, you should know this is what the whole debate's about. The point on which... Everything in this controversy turns. For what we are doing is to inquire what free choice can do, what it, has, what it has done to it, and what its relation is to the grace of God. If we don't know these things, we shall know nothing at all of things Christian and shall be worse than any heathen. Let anyone who does not feel this confess that he is no Christian. While anyone who disparages or scorns it should know that he is the greatest enemy of Christians. For if I am ignorant, listen closely now, if I am ignorant of what, how far, or how much I can and must do in relation to God, it will be equally uncertain and unknown to me what, how far, and how much God can and may do in me, although it is God who works everything and everyone. But when the works and power of God are unknown, I don't know God himself. And when God is unknown, I cannot worship Praise, thank, and serve God. Listen, since I do not know how much I ought to attribute to myself and how much to God. It therefore behooves us to be very certain about the distinction between God's power and our own, God's work and our own, if we want to live a godly life. Is he right? Yes, he is. And it's to the chagrin and the detriment of the Christian church and our country today that very few people seem to care about this issue anymore. But I just want to tell you, truth remains true whether anybody esteems it as such or not. I can only worship when I see my salvation as entirely and not partially of God. And it can only be entirely of God if he chose me unconditionally. That is to say, if my salvation is truly and actually by the grace of God alone, that means that God chose me without looking into the future, without learning things about me, without putting me and working out a billion different scenarios to see what I would do, but he chose me unconditionally. The key question before us is, as the gospel is preached, why do some people believe it and others reject it? And why do some people reject it all the way up to their death even? What makes the difference? Prior to understanding this, I thought the difference was, I'm a lot smarter than those idiots. And I really thought, when I'm in heaven, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to look at those blokes down there in hell and be like, why did you morons believe in evolution? What's wrong with you? How could you not believe? And then reading Romans 9 for the 90th time, slamming my Bible shut, shoving it across the table, and it finally came bearing down, he could have left you in your sins too, and didn't. And here you sit, repentant, and your faith squarely on Christ and nothing else, I remember being overwhelmed with a sense of shame that I ever thought so highly of myself. So what, what did I bring to my salvation? Sin. And that's it. And the positive existence of total resistance to God. That's my contribution. Is this something we do, something God does? Is it a a situation where we do our part, God does his part, and hence we're saved? In the whole history of Christian thought, the whole history of theology, there are only two only actually I think two positions, but there's actually three historically. There's we save ourselves, there's we save ourselves with God's help, and then there's God saves us. The first two I think are pretty much the same because what's the decisive factor in both? Us. And then there's the third position. There's the second position, God saves us. Remember what Paul told Timothy? Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save. Not to make salvation possible, not to give it a shot, 
but to save sinners. Article 7 of the section of the Synod of Dort on divine predestination. And by the way, I know seminary graduates from Reformed seminaries. I know a seminary graduate who is a pastor in a Reformed church from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia who has told me over and over and over again he still has never read the Canons of Dort. Seminary graduate. Never read them. But he's sure they're wrong. Article 7 of the Synod of Dort on divine predestination. Listen. Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Listen. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving. In the very first section of the Canons of Dort, the very first article in the whole thing, in their response to the Arminian remonstrance, to these Arminians saying, no, the decisive factor has to be man. And it's not fair. It's not fair if you say that God just chooses to bypass some and chooses to save others. That's not fair. The very first article of the Synod of Dort, listen, God's right to condemn all people. Since all people have sinned in Adam and come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave us all in our sins and let us die and go to hell. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God, Romans 3.19. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. For grace to be grace, it must be entirely unconditional and it must be entirely free. You want to understand, what is sola gratia? One of those great five solos of the Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. What is grace alone? Unconditional election. That's what it is. Romans 11:5 Even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace and if by grace it is no longer of works otherwise grace is no longer grace There's election of grace and it's unconditional election and if it's by works it's not grace anymore It's not grace anymore Romans 9:11 for the children not yet being born I want you to think about this how many ways the apostle Paul gets this into one verse for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, as if you can do a whole lot of good or evil before you're born in the womb. I guess if you're twins, you could fight with the other, or poke them or something. They haven't done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Six times. It's unconditional. It's according to God's choice. Before they were born. Before they did anything good or bad. So that God's purpose would stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. The older will serve the younger. God simply states it. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Without unconditional election, without God simply choosing among the whole mass of damned humanity, I'm going to choose these ones and give them grace. I'm not going to give them fairness, because fairness is they all go to hell. I'm going to give these grace. I'm going to give these ones grace. Without unconditional election, salvation is not solely by grace. You could say that grace is, grace is a part, part of it, or it's mostly by grace, but without unconditional election, you lose the doctrine of grace alone. Why does God choose to save one man over another? The scriptures are very clear that it is according to his purpose. It's not arbitrary. If anyone ever says, you guys are Christian fatalists. I had a guy who used to tell me that all the time. You're a Christian fatalist. I remember looking up fatalism, like, what is fatalism? Historically, what is that? Fatalism is the belief that everything that happens has no purpose. That's what fatalism is. And I went back and was like, we're the opposite of fatalists, because we believe everything has a purpose. So if someone calls you a fatalist, you need to say, we are the opposite of fatalists. Everything has purpose. God's choice of who he wants to save and who he wants to bypass is according to his own purpose. God never does anything arbitrarily. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Don't you wish that people would memorize the next verse too? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
God elects who he wants to save according to his own purpose and his own grace. Now I want to address to you five common objections that you will hear if people find out you believe in unconditional election, that you believe that God is sovereign over salvation, that is to say you believe Romans 9, Romans 8, John 6, John 10, John 17, and Ephesians 1, along with many other passages, they will give you these objections. Number one, election is unfair to those not so elected. Election is not fair. This is the precise opposite of the truth. <laughs> it's the opposite of the truth. Election is gracious to those who are elected, and it's perfectly fair to those not elected. Perfectly fair. God is unfair to no one, ever. God has never been unfair. He's not capable of being unfair. Those whom God chooses to bypass will get their heart's greatest desire to continue in rebellion against God and to continue in sin all their lives. The unregenerate man not only refuses God's love and God's grace, but also positively is hostile towards God. Did you hear that in the passage we just read from Romans 8, 7, and 8? The sinful mind, the unconverted mind, the unregenerate man is hostile towards God. He hates God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. He's not subject to God, and he won't obey the call to repent and believe either. There's no ability there to repent or believe because there's no desire to do that. And thus, the unelected rebel sinner not only gets what they want, but they get what they deserve too. Election, unconditional election, is a matter of grace, not fairness. Fair is that we all go to hell. Think of this illustration. This is a helpful illustration. Let's say that the governor of Tennessee, there, there's 100 condemned murderers on death row. There's 100 men who have been convicted of murder. They've confessed to murder, and they've been sentenced to die. And the governor decides to pardon 60 of them. And the other 40 are executed for murder. Was that unfair that those 40 were executed for murder? Not at all. They were guilty of murder, and so they were executed for it. Well, what, what happened to the other 60? They were shown grace. They were shown mercy. That's exactly what it is with us. There's nothing unfair about God allowing rebel sinners to go their own way. And doesn't that magnify grace? Once that really grips your heart, you will want to evangelize. You will pray for lost people. You will weep for people and beg God to save them. Number two, election means that God forces people to believe in Jesus against their will. How many of you have ever heard that? You guys think God violates man's will. He, God, God forces people to do stuff against their will. It's one of the most common and unfounded objections to the biblical doctrine of unconditional electing grace and God's effectual call, his regeneration, his new birth that he gives to us. God forces or compels or coerces the elect into the kingdom against their wills. Have you ever heard the illustration? You believe God drags people kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Biblically, the response is this. At no point does God ever force anyone to do anything against their wills. God has never forced anyone to do anything that they didn't want to do. All men, both before and after the fall, both before and after regeneration. All of us have wills. We live by our wills, and we act by our wills. Violence is never done to the will of man by God, ever. Men always act freely in accordance to their own nature and their own desires. How many of you have ever heard of Dr. Norman Geisler? Y'all heard of Norman Geisler? Raise your hand if you'd heard of Norman Geisler. Okay. I read a lot of stuff by Geisler long ago until I found out what an opponent he was of unconditional election, what an opponent he was of really the entire Reformation. This guy sided with Rome against the Reformers on almost every issue related to the issues of grace. And he wrote a book, I believe it was published in 1998 or 99, called Chosen But Free. Chosen But Free. And Dr. James White responded to him in a book called The Potter's Freedom. One of the things in Geisler's book, and I want to contrast biblical truth with Geisler's position because I think his position uh, really has influenced the church a lot. Geisler misunderstood very badly what we're talking about on almost every issue related to grace and to the Reformation. And Geisler really doesn't like R.C. Sproul either. <laughs> and so that's another reason I really didn't like Geisler either. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, I don't doubt for a moment that God has the power to save all, end quote. Geiser didn't like that, and Geiser said this, quote, if this is the case, then Sproul must doubt that God has the love to save all. That is to say, the extreme Calvinist God 
is all-powerful, but he's not all-loving, all loving, just to clear up some confusion. And Geisler's thinking, what is an extreme Calvinist? Just a regular Calvinist. And he says, and in coercing the elect into the kingdom, the supposedly irresistible grace of regeneration negates God's infinite goodness. And then in a footnote, Geisler writes, Sproul speaks reluctantly of the irresistible character of regenerating grace, but tries to soften its compulsive nature by insisting there is no external compulsion. But if God produced the will by irresistible force, then it is theological double talk to say that we do it willingly. This irresistible act of regeneration is compared to an act of resurrection on a passive and dead body. What could be more compulsive, end quote? Now, I just would ask, can you believe that R.C. Sproul would compare regeneration to the resurrection of a dead body? Can you believe he'd do that? <laughs> it's sad to read this because even in the statements that Geisler quotes from Sproul, you, you can tell Sproul's trying his best to make this clear, but Geisler is so committed to the free will of man being the determining force in salvation, he just can't hear what the Bible and what Dr. Sproul was saying. And forgive me, but I need to give you this longer quotation. And I'm doing this because so many today think just like Norm Geisler on this matter. Geisler says this, listen. Some extreme Calvinists, just let's call that what it is. Some regular old Calvinists use a kind of smoke and mirror tactic to avoid the harsh implications of their view. They claim that God does no violence toward a rebellious will. He simply gives a new one. In R.C. Sproul's words, quote, If God gives us a desire for Christ, we will act according to that desire, end quote. This sounds reasonable enough until the implied words are included. If God gives us an irresistible desire for Christ, we will irresistibly act according to that desire. Now it can be seen that extreme Calvinists are using word magic in an attempt to hide the fact that they believe God forces the unwilling against their will. What extreme Calvinists want to do is to avoid the repugnant image of a reluctant candidate being forced into the fold or captured into the kingdom. Therefore, they argue that once that desire is planted, those who come to Christ do not come kicking and screaming against their wills. They come because they want to come. Of course, here again, it is implied but missing words that shine a whole new light on the picture. What Sproul really means is, once that desire is irresistibly planted, those who come to Christ do not come kicking and screaming against their wills. In other words, once someone is dragged against their will, then he will act willingly. But no matter how well the act of irresistible grace is hidden by euphemistic language, it is still a morally repugnant concept. The problem with the idea of irresistible grace and extreme Calvinism, according to this analogy, listen, is that there is no informed consent for the treatment. Or better yet, the patients are dragged, kicking and screaming into the operating room, but once they're given a head transplant, they not surprisingly feel like an entirely different person. End quote. That's the non-reformed view of what the Reformation meant by irresistible grace, by God's effectual call, by the new birth. They think that what we're saying is that God forces men, kicking and screaming, to believe against their will. Even when we point out the biblical teaching that God's effectual call is an act of resurrection, a making alive in Christ that God does that God does upon the dead sinner by his grace alone, we're still told this is wrong. Listen, because there is no informed consent? Did you catch that? You see how strong that commitment is on Geisler's part to the autonomy of the human will and how it must be the decisive factor in salvation? One way or another, no matter how we say it, he wants to accuse us of believing that God forces sinners against their wills to believe. I'd like to point out that Using the biblical imagery of the resurrection of a dead body is completely appropriate on Dr. Sproul's part. Why? Because the Bible does. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The dead can't be informed of anything. Right? Nor can they give their consent to anything because they're dead. Contra Dr. Geisler, listen to the word of God. Listen to scripture. Ephesians 2.1. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And aren't you glad he didn't wait for our informed consent? 
Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Aren't you thankful he did that without our informed consent? Colossians 2.13, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive, having forgiven you all trespasses. And we're chided, we're criticized for looking at God's effectual call as an act of resurrection on a dead body. Guilty. God's command to Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel? Did, did Ezekiel wait for the informed consent of the dry bones? Yeah, you can preach to us and, and, and raise us back to life. Ezekiel 37, 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them over. But there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says Yahweh God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Well, that's, that's just an act of violence because there's no informed consent. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Can you see why Dr. Sproul and Luther and Calvin, Augustine, the greatest churchmen, theologians, and fathers of the faith repeatedly use the illustration of the resurrection of a dead body being analogous to our salvation, to our regeneration, to the new birth? Because the scriptures do, constantly. It captures perfectly what God does in the salvation of sinners. Can you imagine Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus, waiting for Lazarus's informed consent to raise him out of the tomb? Or better yet, could Lazarus have laid there dead and said, nah, I don't want to be resurrected today. God makes the dead alive. They were unsaved under God's wrath. He saves them. What good would it do God to await the informed consent of dead people? Norman Geisler's objections to this are absurd, are just absurd. They're as absurd as a doctor who has a potion that he could give to the dead to make them come back to life, but he refuses to administer it until the dead gives his, their consent to let him do it. Dead people can't be informed of something. They can't give their consent to anything. Neither can they resist nor assist in the, their own resurrection from the dead. One of the phrases Geisler uses in his book, and I've heard this from others as well, is, well, we're not that dead. The degrees of deadness... I didn't know that you could be mostly dead until I saw the Princess Bride. <laughs> you see, the fact is we're entirely passive in the matter. That's the whole point of the illustration, isn't it? That's one of the spiritual truths that's illustrated by the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. What does that illustrate? We're blind too. We can't see either until a miracle is done upon us. Lazarus in the tomb. That's what we were before God saved us. Even the miracles preach the gospel to us and tell us about the grace of God. We are passive. We're passive in our own regeneration, our own new birth. Every view of salvation that denies unconditional election and irresistible, invincible grace is a denial of the fall. It's a denial of original sin and its effects upon the human race. Norm Geisler wrote this, quote, Irresistible force used by God on his free creatures would be a violation of both the charity of God and the dignity of man. God is love, and true love never forces itself on anyone, either externally or internally. Forced love is rape, and God is not a divine rapist. Now, I want you to chew on that for a minute. Here we have a man who is likening God's altogether gracious, kind, loving, merciful act of unconditionally electing rebel sinners who hate him, who have no free will to choose him, and then God's marvelous, wondrous, gracious act of regeneration is being likened to rape? The objection is so offensive and absurd, it's almost not even worth responding to. Was Jesus forcing Lazarus to life? Coercing him out of the grave? Was he coercing people in the valley of dry bones? Of course not. When we speak of God's sovereignty and making dead sinners alive in Christ, listen please, those spiritually dead people cannot resist 
and they can't cooperate with that act of sovereign spiritual regeneration. God does not ever do violence to a person's will. All men have wills. We live by our wills. We act by our wills. The biblical teaching is quite clear. Listen, men are enslaved to sin. We were born slaves of sin. We are not able to repent. We are not able to believe, subject ourselves to the law of God. We cannot come to Christ. We cannot bear good fruit. We're not able to free ourselves from our slavery to sin, and we can't do anything that's spiritually pleasing to God. The multitude of inabilities are spelled out over and over and over again in Scripture. And I had to, reading Geiser's book years ago, I wondered, does he believe any of these? Listen to Scripture. Listen, Matthew 7, 8. A bad tree is not able to bear good fruit. bad tree cannot bear good fruit. John 6, 44. No one is able to come to me. What does 90, 95% of American evangelical churches teach? You're able to come to Christ. What did Jesus say? You're not able. You're not able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 14, 17. The world cannot accept. It's not, it's not that it won't. It's not able to. It cannot accept the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. John 15, verse 4, no branch is able to bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither are you able to bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, apart from me you can do nothing. And then the passage we just read, Romans 8, 7, and 8, the sinful mind does not submit to God's law, nor is it able to do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God, it says. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. They, he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And there are several more, but you get the point. It is these clear, unmistakable, repeated, emphatic, biblical teachings that so many in our day deny. One great Reformed theologian called this the Pelagian captivity of the church. Now, the ancient British monk Pelagius who battled the great Christian theologian Augustine on the issue of original sin and how sin affected us, or, or did it affect us at all? Pelagius seemed to think the fall didn't do anything to us at all. That heresy that goes by the name of Pelagianism is named and condemned by more church councils than any other heresy in the entire history of the church. You need to know what Pelagianism is. You need to know what that is. You, as an individual, kids, you need to know what Pelagianism is. All of you do. Here's how it's defined in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Pelagianism, the most oft-named and condemned heresy in church history. You ready? Here's what it is. Pelagianism is the teaching originating in the late 4th century which stresses one's ability to take the initial steps towards salvation by one's own efforts. That's heresy. Our forefathers in the faith said, that is so seriously wrong, that's outside the realm of orthodoxy. That's heresy. It is sharply opposed to Augustinianism, which emphasizes the absolute necessity of God's interior grace for salvation. The keystone of Pelagianism is the idea of unconditional free will. Pelagius considers grace purely an external aid provided by God. He leaves no room for any special interior action of God upon the soul. Listen, by grace, Pelagius really means free will itself, and this grace is offered equally to all. End quote. Y'all ever heard that before in evangelical churches that that are not Roman Catholic, but they're in the evangelical stream, that's heretical. That's heresy. Reformed theologian Robert Raymond said, quote, it should also be noted that Pelagianism did not die with its conciliar condemnation in A.D. 418. Men and women being born as they are with Pelagian hearts. You hear what he's saying? Everything in us wants to believe we did something, especially in America. We got this Jacksonian conquer the West, carve cities out of mountains stuff down to our gills. You're not going to tell us that we can't save ourselves or make a move and, and do what we need to do to save ourselves. Raymond says, but rather it only went underground. Meanwhile, vexing the church with modified forms of itself, modified just enough to escape the letter of the church's condemnation. For example, it reappeared at once in the semi-Pelagian denial of a necessity of prevenient grace for salvation, and this was opposed by the Council of Orange in 529 A.D. And on and on you could go there. Same view go, goes underground, and it reappears here and there, but eventually, eventually, praise God, it explodes, and it goes nuclear in the 16th century. 
And you have all these great confessions of faith, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Standards, who finally clarify it is God who does the saving. God is the one who unconditionally elects. We're justified by faith alone. The grace by which we're made new creatures in Christ is irresistible because it's based on God's power, and therefore God alone gets the glory. In his book, Chosen But Free, Geisler attempts to respond to nearly all of those passages about not able, not able, not able that I just read to you. He brings them up and responds to them. His responses are mostly unintelligible, but he responds in particular to Romans 8, 7, and 8, the passage that we read. We're going to walk through it here in just a moment. I want to read Geisler's comments uh, to you here. Here's Geisler's analysis of Romans 8, 7, and 8. This appears to say that unsaved, unsaved persons are not, are, are, excuse me, this appears to say that unsaved persons are not free not to sin. That is, sin follows necessarily from their very nature. <laughs> it doesn't appear to say that. It does say that. Just FYI. We sin because we're sinners by nature, rather than being sinners because we sin. Response. It is true that we are sinners by nature, but that old nature does not make sin necessary any more than a new nature makes good acts necessary. The old nature only makes sin inevitable, not, avoid, not unavoidable. Since we are free, sin is not necessary. Furthermore, Paul makes it clear in this section of Romans that our enslavement to sin is of our own free choice. He wrote, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then listen to his last sentence. That's a complete misinterpretation of Romans 6.16. His last sentence. We are born with a bent to sin, but we still have a choice whether we will be its slave. He would have been thrown out of Rome in Rome's worst hour. After the Reformation, the Council of Trent would have condemned this and said, that's heresy. I've read and reread that paragraph I just read to you. Frankly, I have no idea how what he said has any connection at all to Romans 8, 7, and 8. But let's, let's walk through it here together. If you still have your Bibles open, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Just in closing, I want to walk through this together. And I want to encourage you. Let, let this passage say exactly what it says. It's very simple, straightforward, and clear. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What is the mind set on the flesh? That's the unregenerate person. The person who's not born again, not converted, they are hostile toward God. The natural, unregenerate, unbelieving man is not neutral. Y'all need to know that. There are no people that you will ever meet that are sitting on the fence and they haven't decided whether they're going to be sin's slave or not. You don't have a choice whether you're going to be sin's slave. Since Adam fell into sin, he became sin's slave, and everyone born in him has been a slave of sin since then. We don't just have a bent to sin. We are hostile to God, and we are enslaved to sin, willfully and happily enslaved to sin. There is animosity. There is hatred toward God. Not a mere bent to sin, but positive hatred towards God, open rebellion against God and against God's law, as the next phrase says. You see the next phrase of verse 7? For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Okay, the hateful, rebellious, unconverted, unregenerate sinner is not subject to God's law. Why? Because there is in that unbelieving mind a revulsion to God. There's a resistance to God. There's a hatred of God. There's total commitment to self and evil rebellion against the law of God. Geisler said, but that old nature does not make sin necessary. <laughs> I would just say in response, yes, it does. We're in our sinful nature. Sin is necessary. Everything we do is sinful. Even as regenerate Christians, everything we do is still sinful. It still has enough ill motives, enough wrong attached to it to be char characterized as sin. Contrast that to the biblical teaching. God says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, one of the arguments that Jonathan Edwards made in favor of the universality of original sin, he said, if it's not universal, if it's not a biblical teaching, why is it that everybody goes astray? Why don't we occasionally find someone that hasn't gone off into sin? Men in their sinful rebellion, they think way too highly of themselves. We, we do. I, I still do at times probably, but used to really think I, I was a Christian because I was smarter than people that weren't. 
and thus our doctrine of grace is often greatly diminished. Romans 8, 7 ends with the following statement concerning the mind of fallen man and its submission to God's law. You see the last phrase of verse 7? For it is not even able to do so. It's not that it won't. It doesn't have the ability to. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. The unconverted, unregenerate sinner doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the desire. And Geisler makes that assertion, since we are free, sin is not necessary. And he even makes that statement. Paul makes it clear in this section of Romans that our enslavement to sin is our own free choice. We're born with a bent to sin, but we still have a choice whether we will be its slave. That is not true. The text of God's word here before us emphatically states the opposite. The word of God here before us is clear. The unregenerate mind is not able, not able, to subject itself to the law of God. Third objection, another common objection. Election makes pursuing holiness meaningless. You guys are saying, and I know you've heard this, you guys are saying a person, there could be a person who really repents and believes the gospel, and they pursue holiness, they serve as a missionary, they do great loving their spouse, but they die and find out they weren't one of God's elect. Or there could be a person who lives their entire life as a thieving, lying, murdering drunkard who beats his wife and abuses his children and mocks God in the Bible all the way to the bitter end of his life, but then he dies and finds out he was one of God's elect and he goes to heaven. I've heard that many times. And the response to this is simple. God doesn't merely elect men into salvation, but he also predestines them to be conformed to the image of Christ. He elects them unto a godly and holy life. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They're not going to die unregenerate, still in their sins, serving sin. They will come to me, he says. At some point in time, whether it's the thief on the cross a few minutes before his death, or the covenant child regenerated in the womb, they will come to Christ. In Titus 2, 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he would redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Can there be a true Christian who has no zeal for good works? No. Impossible. The fourth objection, election destroys our motive for evangelism. This fails to understand the biblical teaching that God does not decree merely the final outcome, he also decrees every single step toward that outcome. We know that God calls us to do evangelism, to talk to people about the gospel, to give out tracts, to speak with people. No one understood that better than the Apostle Paul. Paul who taught, God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Charles Spurgeon said this about Paul's missionary zeal, quote, I trace Paul's exceeding evangelism to the fact that he was so remarkably converted. He could not be content with the surface of truth. He dove into the depths of grace and sovereignty. He saw in himself the boundless power, the infinite mercy, the absolute sovereignty of God, and therefore he bore witness more clearly than any other to these divine attributes. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Why was Paul so zealous to do evangelism? He knew he had been chosen. He knew that only God could be the one who had broken through that heart of stone and saved him. You know, Paul spoke in ways, you almost hear nobody talk today. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Do people talk, talk like that or think like that anymore? There was a missionary we supported when at the church there in Ohio. He'd been a missionary for the majority of his life in Kenya, in the country of Kenya. And he was persecuted. He uh, formed a Christian school, and those tribal people, the, the kids in the, among the Rendili people in Kenya, their kids all came to the school, and he was teaching them the shorter catechism and he's teaching them Romans, and he's teaching them the gospel, and he was persecuted by the authorities, he was persecuted by Roman Catholic nuns and Roman Catholic missionaries that were there trying to destroy their school and trying to get their kids into their own schools, and several times he was imprisoned and he was beat up. At one point, we remember praying that his jaw would heal, he'd been hit in the face uh, with a closed fist and had cracked his jaw, and this guy wrote a letter that was read to our church, it was one of the most moving things I've ever heard in my entire life. And this guy with his face all swollen and doing all this work to, for these tribal kids that they would hear the gospel. And the last thing he said in his letter was a quotation of 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect children in my school. 
Ah, oh, this election stuff is just for theological eggheads and you Calvinist weirdos. It motivates evangelism and love for people in a way that nothing else can. You know, I saw a really funny meme on Facebook long ago. It's a famous picture of the Apostle Paul after he was blinded on the road to Damascus. It's him doing this. And the caption says, I was on my way to murder more Christians when suddenly I used my free will to become one. <laughs> Fifthly and finally, because God elects to save only some and not all of the fallen race, that makes God only partially and imperfectly loving. Norm Geisler, as much as anyone I've ever read, whether it was Desiderius Erasmus or whoever, he detested, detested the idea of unconditional election. And I wanted to read to you an illustration. I've read it to you before. This is how Norman Geisler characterizes our understanding of divine predestination. Here's Geisler's illustration, and I want to respond to it. <clears throat> he wrote this, quote, Suppose a farmer discovers three boys drowning in his pond where he had placed signs clearly prohibiting swimming. Further, noting their blatant disobedience, he says to himself, they have violated the warning and have broken the law, and they have brought these deserved consequences on themselves. Thus far, he's manifesting his sense of justice. But if the farmer proceeds to say, I will make no attempt to rescue them, we would immediately perceive that something was lacking in his love. And suppose by some inexplicable whim, he should declare, even though the boys are drowning as a consequence of their own disobedience, Nonetheless, out of the goodness of my heart, I will save one of them and let the other two drown. In such a case, we would surely consider his love to be partial and imperfect, end quote. Now, the problems with that illustration are manifold. The problems are manifold. It's not so much what it says, but what it leaves out that makes it such a dangerous illustration. First, the farmer, a mere creature, a sinner himself is supposed to represent God. Perhaps the illustration would be better if the farmer were replaced by the most righteous and good king, whose track record of goodness and generosity, kindness, patience, and holiness knew of no comparison among men who have ever lived. The illustration also greatly trivializes the heinousness of human sin, doesn't it? Three good old boys jumping into a swimming hole that says no swimming? Perhaps that ought to be replaced with the three boys murdering the king's whole family, all of his servants, and then burning down his house while he's away. Nothing is said in Geiser's illustration of the drowning boy's response to the father's attempt to save them. All three of them mock, splash, curse, and spit at the father in his attempts to save them. The farmer's desire is called in Geiser's illustration a, a, quote, inexplicable whim, end quote. Dr. Samuel Storms criticizes this phrase in these words. Listen, this sort of needless caricature portrays God's solemn, most blessed, and altogether gracious determination to save as little more than a bothersome afterthought with no purpose or design. What the author of this illustration calls a whim, the Word of God calls the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1.5. Finally and most amazingly, and this, this amazes me, Geiser's illustration makes no mention of the cost of the salvation. His own son. The farmer's son. Samuel Storm's response to Geisler is so devastating. I just want to read this paragraph. This is from Dr. Storm's book, Chosen for Life, where he takes up Geisler's illustration and does this response. Listen. Divine biblical love, on the other hand, entails that the farmer cast his own son into the pond, knowing full well that if his son makes an effort to save the boys, he will die. The son swims to the three boys, notwithstanding their vehement and hostile cries that he get out of the water and leave them alone. As he reaches the three, he extends his arms in love to but one of them. Though that one boy is vile and reprehensible in every respect, the son of the farmer brings him back safely to the shore, but in doing so, he himself drowns. The two remaining boys laugh and mock that the farmer's son has drowned. Their glee is beyond control. The one boy for whom the son gave his life to save is suddenly brought to tears as he senses the magnitude of the love that has been shown to him while he was yet hateful and full of blasphemy. The farmer lifts the boy up, dries him off, cleans the mud and filth from his body, and clothes him in the garments of his own son. 
They embrace an everlasting love. The young boy falls to his knees in gratitude, tears flowing. The two who remain in the water continue hurling their taunts at the farmer, declaring that even if they could start anew, they would dive defiantly into the middle of that pond without a moment's hesitation. I will tell you what love is. It's not providing a lifeline to drowning men who have no arms or hands with which to grasp it. It is sacrificing your only son to jump in and rescue someone by wrapping that rope around his waist and drawing him firmly but surely to the safety of the shore. And what of the two who remain and demand loudly that they be left to their chosen plight? So be it, says the farmer. You not only deserve to drown, but take delight in it as well. Have it your way. And so they do. God said to Moses, when Moses was on Mount Sinai the second time, remember what Moses said to God? Show me your glory. I want to see you. What was God's answer to him? You don't want to look at me, Moses. You would not survive it. No one can look at me and live. And then God says this to him in Exodus 33, 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's the assumption behind that? Everybody is in need of grace. Everybody is in need of compassion. And no one is worthy of either. God is free. God is sovereign in the exercise or withholding of his grace. The scripture says, Romans 9, 16, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And then verse 18, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. To say that we are saved by grace necessitates unconditional election. God is free and sovereign in the exercise of his grace and mercy. And therefore, to God alone be the glory for our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless your name for that glorious gift of grace by which you save your people from their sins by Jesus Christ. We confess that all glory goes to you, and we are so thankful that you chose to glorify your grace. While we were yet hateful and dead in our sins, under your just condemnation, we bless your name that in your appointed time, as you decided from eternity past, the Holy Spirit of God came upon us and changed that dead, hateful heart of stone into a beating heart of flesh that loves you, that is repentant for sin, and that rests on the finished work of Christ and his imputed righteousness always and only and forever. And we give you all the glory.